If you're new here, we make much of Jesus Christ here. We're a part of eight different campuses in the Middle Tennessee area, all with one mission to engage the whole person with the whole gospel of Jesus Christ anywhere, anytime, with anybody. And we're so glad you're here. One of our other campus pastors this week shared with our larger staff meeting a uh, New York Times article that said 90,000 books from October 2021 to February 2022. In a five-month period, 90,000 books were returned in New York City's public library system in five months. Boxes of books, some books with apologies on it, books from the 1970s return. Here's, here's one example that said, hey, we haven't returned these enclosed our books from 1972. That's a few years ago, amen? Some of them that were returned had to be delivered to a different address because the library they checked it out from doesn't exist anymore. They had to find where that library is now. 90,000 books in a five-month period returned. Why? Well, in October, New York City canceled all debts for library fines and fees. So if you owed money to the library system, debt canceled. Hey, if you've had that book on your bedside table since 1972 and you owe us $36,532.18 in fees, done, free, gone. Some people that had been in debt to the library system most of their life, but they canceled them, 90,000 books delivered in a five-month period. Isn't that interesting? See, it's interesting. In fact, I think it's fascinating How we live our lives when we don't fear punishment or rejection. It's amazing how free we become when we don't fear punishment or rejection. And that's one of the things we've been learning as we study God's word. And we're in a series called Up at Night. And we're walking through the book of 1 John. So if you have a Bible, grab it and open it to 1 John. If you're new to the Bible, just go all the way back to the book of Revelation. Start turning left until you get to 1 John. It was written by a man named John, one of Jesus' followers, early disciples, who wrote the Gospel of John that we studied earlier this year. And the reason why I want you to open God's word is because God's word, not my words, have the word of life. We build our lives on his word. We bank our eternity on God's word. It shapes and molds and informs everything about us. And so we want you to bring a Bible because we're going to look at God's word and we're going to see how amazing it is, how free we live when we don't fear punishment our rejection. And so we're working our way in reverse and we find ourselves today in John 1st John chapter 2. He says this, "My little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one." He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. I'm writing to you, he says, so that you may not sin. But 
If we do, really when we do, we have an advocate in Jesus Christ, the righteous one. For he himself was the atonement, not only for our sins, but the sins of the world. So God, today, this is glorious, it's true, and I pray it would resonate well in our hearts that we're free people. And the choices and the decisions that we make in this world are based, birthed out of the freedom that we have in Christ. So help us to meet with you and be changed by you as we study your word in Jesus' name. And everybody said? All right, so we're going to jump in here. And we're going to see why it's so fascinating how we live our lives when we don't fear punishment or rejection and There's a three-letter word in the beginning of this that's one of the least popular words in the Bible, but we're going to talk about it, and we're going to deal with it. And John says this in uh, verse 1. He says, My little children. And this reflects something about the relationship John has with his readers. It's, It's affectionate. He loves them. He's their pastor. He's their leader. He feels responsible for them. So he's not putting them down. He's actually saying, I love you and I care for you and I want to lead you into God's best. And so this is, this is affection. So this is my little children. I'm writing you these things so that you may not, what's the word? Yeah, it's not a popular word, but it's a Bible word. And not everyone believes that sin is real or sin is an issue. But the Bible says that sin separates us from God. It indwells us. We can't get rid of it. That's something only Jesus does. It's not something on the outside. It's on the inside. And if you don't believe we're all born with a sin problem, you've never raised kids. Hello. Those little boogers come broken. We talk about it all the time. And he says, I'm writing so that you may not sin. Seems simple. Don't sin. But it's not really simplistic, is it? As we know, it's actually pretty difficult. Honestly, I would say it's impossible not to sin. And man, for many of us, we feel the desperation of what Paul said in Romans 7 when Paul wrote this. He said, for I don't understand my own actions. Show of hands, how many of y'all have ever felt that way? Don't point at your neighbor and be like, look, talk to this guy right here. I'm not talking about that. I don't understand why I do some of this, Paul is saying. And this is one of the leading church planters in history who wrote the majority of the New Testament met with Jesus on the Damascus Road, the Apostle Paul. I don't understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very things I hate. Ever feel that way? Man, there are things that I want to do, and I just sometimes I just can't do them. And there's things that I, I don't want to do. And I feel like I just can't stop doing those things. And Paul wrestled with this tension is because of the sin that indwells us and we're forgiven, but there's still a battle in our flesh. And so we have to figure out how to, how to balance that and how to fight that. Cause Paul says, shall we continue to sin so that grace may abound? No, no. So that's not the answer, but we feel and we wrestle and we know we want to grow and follow Jesus, but we keep messing up. And so John, he writes, hey, I'm writing to you so that you may not sin. Hey, thanks, John. That's real easy to do. I'm working on it. Even Paul struggled with it. Well, John knows this. He's not unsympathetic because initially, I mean, 
the book we're reading is a few thousand years old, and he's writing to a church in the first century. And part of what he's writing to and addressing is a group in that church that said Jesus really isn't all that necessary. Jesus isn't the Son of God who left heaven and came to earth with crucified, buried, and rose again. Jesus isn't necessary for your salvation. Jesus isn't the only way to God. Jesus isn't the only way to receive forgiveness. And so John is addressing that, and he's saying, hey, those false teachers are wrong. Don't sin by believing them. Don't sin by agreeing with them. Jesus is the Son of God. He is necessary for salvation. So that's part of what he's addressing. But he's also reminding them of what he had already said in chapter 1, which is this. He said in verse 10, If we say we have not sinned, we make him, that's God, a liar, and his word is not in us. So if we say, I have not sinned, and sin isn't just actions, it's a state of the heart, something we can't get rid of on our own. If we say we haven't, then we make God a liar. And we're saying, I don't need Jesus. And so John's saying, hey, the reality is we do sin. And what John is encouraging us to do is to take our faith very seriously. Now, some people's perspective of a church is, hey, Christians have a list of things we do and of things, things we don't do. And as long as you keep the list, you're good. But if you don't keep the list, you're out. And so at the end of your life, your good outweighs your bad. And that's, that's sort of the journey of the Christian life. That's a horrible existence. Christianity is not about rules and checklists. And yes, God has a life of flourishing and blessings and promise and life and joy. And there are things we should avoid and there are things we should do. But it's not about the list. It's about Jesus. But he does want us to take our faith seriously. And like I said earlier, Paul said, hey, we shouldn't just keep sinning so God just keeps giving more grace. He wants us to be in the fight for our sanctification, our growth. And one author famously famously said, hey, we either start killing sin in our life or sin starts killing us. And so he does want us to engage in our own faith and our spirituality. And so let me just help you in that fight. Let me help you in that journey. A couple things you need to know as we're in this battle together. Number one, good things become idols if you're not careful. Good things become idols if we're not careful. And idolatry is when you take anything, anything, and place it above Jesus and your faith. Idolatry is when you take anything and say it's the most important, and Jesus is secondary. And quite often, listen, look right here. This is normally a subtle shift. It's not normally just an outward action. It's normally a drift towards that. Most of us walking with Jesus wouldn't just openly say, oh yeah, Jesus is second or third, and this is primary. But it's a subtle shift if we pay attention. And there's a lot of good things in our lives. Work, finances, recreation, your family, your athletics, your academics. And what happens is over time, we end up saying work, finances, athletics, academics. We end up saying, hey, no, 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 this is ultimate. I'll make time for Jesus when I can. Or I'm going to make my decisions in life based on career or finances, athletics, academics over my faith, over my family. You see, what happens is there's a drift and good things become idols. And an idol is anything you place as primary over Jesus. 
And so for some of you, as you're discerning next steps in your life and in your career, I mean, be prayerful because we live in one of the most driven, dedicated, successful areas in the world. And I want you to be great at whatever you do. I want you to be driven and be passionate. Look, I'm an Enneagram 3. I'm an ENTJ. I'm a high D. I want to win at everything I do. Just ask my wife. I want to win. But sometimes a promotion in your life is not a promotion. Sometimes more is not more. One more rung up the ladder may look great on your resume, but it might not be great for your faith or your family. And we drift where good things become idols because now every decision is filtered by, does it advance my career? So we have to be careful. Work hard, whether you're an employee or the CEO. Be the best. But don't let good things become idols. Same thing with our finances. Like my wife and I, we have a financial plan. We save. We're working towards college, retirement, Roth IRAs, all of that. But our financial decisions are based on God's principles and what we choose to believe his best is. And we don't let good things become idols. And for most of us, if you're like me, like most of us here, we're raising kids to some degree. Show of hands, how many of you have a child in your home? The vast majority. So for those of you who are raising kids, and I'm I'm raising three right now, I just want to encourage you to remember, and again, I'm raising three, that their athletic gift and their academic prowess are not primary. It's not primary. The question we have to answer when we're raising our kids is are they becoming disciples that will multiply disciples? Do they worship Christ? And do they love Him? And are they looking at His plan and His best and His will that will determine their college and their career and their spouse and their future and submitting to Jesus above all else? And whatever that means, are we leading them down that path first. Now listen to me. I think sports are great. I think they're a gift from the Lord. I think they're incredible. In fact, man, if your kid can kick a ball, teach them how to kick the mess out of it. If they can throw a fastball, be the best at throwing it. If they can dance or run or catch or throw or do gymnastics, whatever they do, be great at it. But don't let it be primary. And look, it's, it's a dance we have to walk. I have three, and all of them have a pursuit in their life that they want to follow. One of mine has a vision and a dream of playing sports at the next level. And I'll tell you, I'll just give you a little insight how my wife and I balance this. We don't always balance it well. Let me give you a little picture into it. We, we say to them, each of them, hey, however passionate you want to be, we want to help you. We want to put resources and time and energy behind your passion. We don't live through them. Now listen, some of you need to go get your college or your high school yearbook, open it up, hug your letter jacket, and put it up, okay? (laughs) Don't live through your kids. But if they're passionate about it, man, help them. Get after it. But here's what we do. We watch in our life and we watch in their life. Does their passion for their craft their athleticism, their dance, whatever they're doing, begin to exceed their passion for Jesus and his purposes, his church and their involvement. 
And we will put time and energy and sacrifice behind their craft. Be as great as you can. But, but if it begins to get out of balance, we, we don't pull back on faith. We, we don't pull back on spiritual disciplines. We don't pull back on church. We pull back on this. Because at some point, they take their last snap. At some point, they dance their last dance. They go to their last meet. They run their last race. But they run the race of faith their entire life. And we don't always do it well. But every week, every month, my wife and I are like, hey, how's the balance? Is their faith flourishing? Are they growing in Christ? And, man, I watch. Like, man, I, I, don't, I don't say much about my kids. I don't really brag on them. But, but man, just, just the other week, I walked, I walked into my son's room, and he was up for one of his 5 a.m. workouts. He's always working out somewhere. It was about 5.10. I just peeked in his room. Knew he had to be up and leaving the house soon. And I was like, man, what's he doing? He needs to go. And I looked in. He's sitting on, his, sitting on his bed, Bible in his lap. Just reading his Bible before he started his day. I was more proud of that moment than anything he's ever done on the field. Because it's a type of character and faith and strength that God's doing in his heart that the world needs. And so let them be great at everything they do. But make sure it's not at the expense of being great for Jesus. And that's also true for, for academics. And listen, we value academics at the Owens household. Like we think a um, powerful mind in the hands of God is a good thing. Well-educated. In fact, we require A's. If they don't get an A, then there is discipline. We require A's in our household. In fact, the first word we wanted them to say was scholarship. Didn't care if they said data, they'll get there. But you say scholarship, you know what I mean? But let's just say they get a perfect score on the SAT or they crush the ACT and they get into the best school and they get the best job. But along the way, the, the flame of their faith is just kind of sputtering. And those dynamic, life-changing decisions of career and journey and marriage and purpose are not run through the lens and filter of God's calling on their life. We have not set them up for success. In fact, we failed them. We failed them. And so good things become idols if we're not careful. Be great! but not at the expense of Jesus. You can do both. Most just don't. Good things can be idols. Number one. Number two. These will go a little faster. Temptation, talking about sin, is timely. It's timely. So you read a lot of books about this, and you'll you'll hear something repeated time and time again. Temptation is timely because when you're tired, physically or emotionally, You're isolated, you're alone, you're traveling, your parents are gone, you're lonely or you're stressed. Tired, isolated, alone, lonely, and stressed. That's when you are most susceptible to things that are not God's best. And God has a plan to bless you and flourish you for joy and thriving, but the enemy's plan is to derail you. Tired, isolated, lonely, stressed, you are open for attack. And I love the way Jay Finnell described it this week. He said, there's always an opportunity for something that's not God's best. So there's an opportunity, and then there's our desire. 
And when opportunity for something that's not God's best and your desire for that same thing meet up, boom, that's the problem. And the opportunity and the desire are typically at its peak when you're tired, alone, stressed, fatigued. Those things are triggers in your life. And you need to be aware. How many of you can attest? Man, when I'm fatigued, I'm isolated, I'm lonely, I'm stressed. It's an optimal time for temptation. You have to know when you're prone to wander. you got to know. It's timely. And not only is it timely, but it's tenacious. And listen, we're Baptists here, so I needed to alliterate well. Y'all with me? It's tenacious. There's not a third one. There's typically three points that have the same, just two, so give me a little credit. But tenacious, meaning it's, it's for some of us, there are things that we're going to war with our entire lives. Paul had a thorn in his flesh that we don't know what it is, but he had it his entire life. There are things that I wrestle with, and I'm going to wrestle with them to my grave, so hopefully my kids and grandkids don't have to. And so it's tenacious. And one author said, hey, you have to know your weak areas and anticipate temptation if you're going to be successful in this life. Know where you're weak and anticipate it are vital parts of your game plan. My mentor used to tell me, if you don't know what you're going to do when the moment arrives, you're going to make the wrong choice every time. Does that make sense? I'll say it again. If you don't already know what you're going to do when the moment arrives, you're going to make the wrong decision every time. So part of our discipling and training is helping people understand God has a way that is best. He's not some mean curmudgeon who's trying to take life from you. He's actually trying to let you thrive in this world. And so if you don't know what you're going to do, when the moment arrives, you'll fail every time. And when you fall into temptation, one of the things that I've learned to do is I rewind the clock and go, okay, what was the trigger? What led me there? Why did I arrive at that decision? Maybe I, maybe I should have went to bed earlier. Maybe I should have put my phone down. Maybe I shouldn't have been in that situation. I rewind the clock, look at where I made a mistake so I can correct it in the future. Like, hey, what was it that just poured gas on the flame that day? And God, help me to avoid that in the future because it's, it's, it's tenacious. But you also need to know, man, escape It's possible. We all have areas that are hard or difficult where we struggle. I am just like you with areas that I struggle with. But I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He said this, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. Praise God, he's faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. There's a door open somewhere. And I know I'm going to be tempted and I know there are things that want to derail me from God's best. And when those moments come up and I feel it, I look for the way out. Sometimes it's just simply to run. It may look foolish, but man, I will leave a room. I will walk away. I'll set something down. I get out of the situation. I run. I get away. Like we talked about last week, learn to let the Holy Spirit influence, lead, and guide you. A couple of pro tips when you're looking for a way of escape. Number one, you could just learn the power of no. Like like Paul said, hey, I used to beat my body into submission. So you could just learn the power of no. In January, I said, you know what? I'm going to not have anything sweet, any sugar for the entire month because, man, I got a sweet tooth. Any sweet tooths with me in here? Amen. It's like Jesus, family, chocolate. 
So, I mean, I wanted to lose a few pounds, but I also wanted to learn. I felt like, I was like, I'm not as disciplined in my no as I need to be. So for the entire month, no sugar of any kind, just because I wanted to learn the power of no. It's like I want to be able to learn in small, sort of insignificant ways. I want to be able to say no and be in control and not feel controlled. You know what I'm saying? So just learn the power of no, and you learn the discipline of saying, hey, I can control the small things so that when the big things come along, you have a muscle memory of control. Learn the power of no. That's one. Two, I'll tell you what's been probably more powerful in my spiritual journey than anything else. As I ask God, crazy, right? I said, God, would you give me more joy in the obedience in the moment than the temporary pleasure of submitting to that sin? Because there's always a temporary pleasure, right? And that's why we keep coming back. It leads to shame. But I said, God, I want, I want more joy and satisfaction in the obedience of saying no to that than I do in the temporary pleasure of it. And God says sometimes we have not because we ask not. So I just said, God, would you just give me an abundance of joy when I walk into that moment or the temptation arises and I say no to it. Would you flood my heart with joy of obedience <laughs> instead of the temporary pleasure? So you just, just try that. And listen, we're all going to stumble. My knees are bloody from falling down. But you need to know you can keep fighting. When you stumble, it doesn't mean it's over. Yes, we're prone to wonder. But sometimes we ask the question, when I sin, how does God see me? And answering that question is one of the most powerful things you could do in your life. When I sin, how does God see me? If you're in Christ, look right here. If you belong to Jesus, if you've asked him to save you, if you are his... If you're a Christian, here's how he sees you every moment of your life. Every moment. Highs, lows, ups and downs. In church, singing, in the middle of sin. This is how he sees you. Mine. Holy. Chosen. Son. Daughter. Freed. Forgiven. Perfect. Righteous. And see, and it's from that place, what we've been learning in John. It's from that place of freedom that, that makes me want to follow him. It's amazing the life we live when we don't fear rejection or punishment. So I keep fighting. When you stumble and fall, and we all have that area of our life where we're like, I'm never doing that again. And then the next day, what do you do? That again, right? Well, the enemy wants to keep you down in shame and guilt and suffering. And God says, you need to get up and walk with your king. Because I died for every sin, past, present, and future. One famous pastor always would say, God's not in love with some future version of you. Like right now. So we get up and we walk with our king. He sees you as holy and chosen. And the reality is your heavenly father doesn't hold a grudge. And we all have people in our life that we've wronged or we've made a mistake or we got in an argument or we didn't do it well. I'm like, oh man, when I go to work and Bob's going to be at work. Sorry if your name is Bob and you're here. It's just the first name came out. But man, Bob's going to be there. And man, Bob's going to be angry and I was going to avoid Bob's desk. And so we change our whole pattern of workflow. We don't even go to the bathroom or go to the water cooler because Bob's going to be over there and Bob's going to be, oh my gosh. Or with our spouse, I don't know, I, want, I don't want to call, man, she's still going to be mad. Or I don't want to, you know, we avoid situations because we know people probably won't respond well. And so in our sin, 
Sometimes we think, oh man, if I get up, God's going to zap me. If I get up, God's going to punish me. Jesus was punished so that you would never be. All of God's wrath was poured out on Jesus. So you keep fighting. You get up and you walk with your king. You acknowledge you failed and you acknowledge his way is better and you keep going. You keep fighting. And we fight from a place of freedom. We're not fighting for freedom. We're fighting from freedom in Christ. And then lastly, man, look, there is hope. There is hope, and the hope is not you. The hope is not being good. The hope is not keeping a list. The hope is Christ in you. That's the hope. We by ourselves are not winners. Jesus is the winner. We are not victorious. Jesus is victorious. And look at what John says. He says this. He says, but if anyone does sin, he's like, it's coming. It's coming. We have an advocate. I love that. With the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And this word's powerful. You underline it in your Bible. Advocate. Paraclete in the Greek. It's the same word for Holy Spirit that we talked about last week. But in 1 John here, and only here, and then four other times in the Gospel of John that he wrote, John actually refers to Jesus. So every other time in the Bible, advocate is used. It's talking about the Holy Spirit and his role in our life. However, in 1 John... John uses it to talk about Jesus Christ himself. And the reason why that's so powerful is it teaches us part of Jesus' function right now in heaven. He's our advocate. Every day of your life, he's your advocate. And an advocate is someone who speaks on behalf of the accused. And so the enemy, man, he's going to lob up accusations and your sin makes you feel unworthy or unholy. And there's all of this guilt and condemnation. And every moment of your life, the highest of moments and the deepest regrets, every second, Jesus is sitting next to the Father going, that one's ours. She belongs to me. He belongs to me. We're going to finish the good work. I've paid for that. They belong to us. They're ours. Every moment of your life, you have an advocate. So I said it's fascinating the way we live our lives when we don't fear rejection. And Jesus is described as the righteous one. And the reason why he can speak on your behalf is because he's the sinless one who paid for it, who died for it. But he's not just an advocate for those who sin. Look at this. Verse 2, he himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only our sins, but also for those of the whole world. Sin is wicked. And it had to be paid for, and either we pay for it or Jesus did. And Jesus did. Which means you don't have to pay anything back. Which means it's been done. When Jesus went to the cross, what looked like the greatest defeat in the entire world was, in fact, the greatest liberation of captives the world had ever seen. That we became sons and daughters. He substituted himself on the cross. Jesus took your place and said, I'll stand in their place. Our sin for his righteousness. 
And the reason we have hope and victory is because of what Jesus already did. You don't have to pay him back and you don't have to beat yourself up. He was beaten so we don't have to be. He was condemned so we never would. And it's not going to be your efforts or your works. (laughs) It's Jesus' righteousness on your behalf. So God sees you as perfect and clean and holy. We just want you to walk in it. We want to live the fullness that God has for our lives. We want to know him. We want him to change us. Discover the calling he has on our life. Go make a difference in this world. And it's amazing the lives we live when we know we're free. And what we want to do is we want to take an opportunity now as a church. Is we want to have one of the more powerful moments of worship really the church ever has the opportunity to share. And that's, that's in the sharing of the Lord's Supper. And our deacons are going to begin passing out the elements and They'll pass a tray and you'll take a cup off. And here's my request to you. Some of you may be here and you're not a Christian. You're not a follower of Jesus. And we're so glad you're here. Everything we do, you're, you're, you're allowed to be a part of and we're here for you. This is one moment, though, where we might ask you just to pass it. Because this is something that God gave his church and his people. And look, it's just, it's a little bitty kind of dry state. It's probably like a piece of cardboard. I don't know, but it's not great. And it's Welch's juice. But for the Christian, it's so much more. And so if you just pass it, thank you. There's no guilt or shame. We're just glad you're here. But for the, for the church, it's not bread or juice. It's, it's a reminder of what Jesus did for us. It's a reminder that his body was broken and his blood was shed for my freedom. It's a picture to the church that Jesus was tortured so that we wouldn't have to be. He was shamed so that we wouldn't feel the shame of our sin. And he died so that we could live. And so if you're not a Christian, man, we're so glad you're here. But we would invite you, urge you, call you to respond to Jesus. To say yes to Jesus. To say yes and accept him into your life. And say, I say no to sin and yes to Jesus. I believe that he was crucified, buried, and rose again. He defeated death, defeated sin for me. And I need him. I want him. I surrender. I long to have him be my Lord. You do that today. Cry out to him. We're so glad that you're here. And the reason why the taking of the Lord's Supper is one of the, I think, more meaningful times of worship is because it's a picture. It's not just a song. It's more than a sermon. It's a moment where we get to reflect on the one thing, the one moment in history when death was defeated, the one moment when Jesus conquered hell and sin for you. And so it's a picture of what happened. And so once you receive the elements, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand up. And we're going we're gonna to take these together. I'm going to read out of 1 Corinthians. 
you'll notice that you'll need to separate the cups if you have not already. And Paul's writing, the early church is instituting the Lord's Supper. And Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And it says, in the same way, he took the cup after supper. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Paul went on to say, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we join 2,000 years of brothers and sisters in Christ who have found freedom, forgiveness, life, Joy, not only in this world, but in eternity with God. And we will proclaim Jesus until he comes. Amen? Amen. Let's sing.